Hey friends, this is Michael Bohm with Youth Apologetics Training. Uh, today we're going to have a guest, Dr. Jason Lyle of the Institute of Creation Research. Uh, we're going to be talking about astronomy, the Big Bang, and a young Earth. As Director of Research, Dr. Lyle leads ICR's gifted team of scientists who continue to investigate and demonstrate the evidence for creation. He graduated summa cum laude from Ohio Wesleyan University where he double majored in physics and astronomy. He earned a master's degree and a PhD in astrophysics at the University of Colorado. Dr. Lyle specialized in solar astrophysics and has made a number of scientific discoveries regarding the solar photosphere and has contributed to the field of general relativity. After completion of his research at the University of Colorado, Dr. Lyle began working in full-time apologetics ministry focusing on the defense of Genesis. Dr. Lyle, Dr. Lyle was instrumental in developing the planetarium at the Creation Museum in Kentucky. Awesome place. Been there. Writing and directing popular planetarium shows, including the Created Cosmos. Dr. Lyle speaks on topics relating to science and the defense of the Christian faith using logic and correct reasoning. He has authored numerous articles and books demonstrating that biblical creation is the only logical possibility for origins. Uh, some of these books, guys, I, I own many of Dr. Lyle's books. The Ultimate Proof of Creation, Resolving the Origins of Debate, uh, awesome book. Discerning Truth, Exposing Errors in Evolutionary Arguments, again, awesome book. Uh, Stargazer, Stargazer's Guide to the Night Sky, don't have that one yet, but I want it. Taking Back Astronomy, The Heavens Declare Creation, amazing book. Uh, a lot of things we're going to talk about, many of the things we're going to talk about tonight uh, will be found in that book. Awesome book. Why Genesis Matters, uh, The Solar System, God's Heavenly Handiwork. Uh, he also has a DVD, Astronomy Reveals Creation. Uh, guys, and he has so many articles online. Uh, a very distinguished guest tonight. I'm very excited. Uh, Dr. Jason Lyle, welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Oh, well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. So, uh, friends, again, like I was mentioning in the introduction, uh, tonight we want to talk about the origin of the universe, uh, was it somehow born into existence through natural causes via some kind of a Big Bang 14 billion years ago, uh, or was it created by our God, the God of the Bible, 6,000 years ago? So I guess let's start off with, uh, Dr. Lyle, what is the Big Bang, and, and why do scientists believe that it actually occurred? Okay, well, the Big Bang is uh, a naturalistic idea of how the universe could come into existence, and uh, it's, it, it, is, it is atheistic in its origin, or at least in terms of its uh, motivation for believing it. It's, it's supposed to explain our existence without invoking God, without invoking creation, without invoking miracles or the supernatural. And a lot of scientists believe in it for that very reason, because many scientists have a materialistic or naturalistic worldview. That is, they don't think that uh, God exists, or if they do think that God exists, they think he doesn't do anything, and so that you know miracles can't occur and so on. Uh, but of course, I'm a scientist, and I reject the Big Bang, and I have some scientific reasons to reject it. I have some philosophical reasons to reject it, reject it and I have some biblical reasons to reject it. 
But uh, I just want to make that clear right at the outset. It is a naturalistic idea. And basically the story, and it is a story, uh, it goes something like this. The idea is that originally there was nothing and uh, other than, I guess, a singularity, which is basically um, a point uh, with, with nothing around it, a single point of no size at all, and all of the material in space and even space itself is packed into this point, this singularity, which then for some reason rapidly expands, it sort of explodes out and expands like a, a rapid balloon. And that carries all this, all the material that's packed into that point, all the space that's packed into it, it carries it out, it stretches it out, expands uh, into a very large region. And so in the Big Bang idea, the universe started out smaller than an atom, and it has rapidly expanded. And this, this process allegedly takes, well, to get to the current size of the universe, it allegedly takes uh, 13.8 billion years is the latest number they put on it. Oh wow! Yeah, and the reason they the reason they put that number on it, by the way, that that comes from the fact that we we do see evidence that the universe is getting bigger; it's being expanded out. And my secular colleagues assume that that is sort of the leftover energy from this initial uh, explosion. And so, working it backwards, um, they can't they they can't go back beyond 13.8 billion years because everything would be in the same place at the same time. And so that puts an upper limit on it. But the idea then is. Uh, all this material, as it's expanding out early in the Big Bang, it, uh, it basically it, this, it's just it's incredibly hot, incredibly high temperatures. Because when you pack a lot of stuff into a small space, uh, it, it creates heat. I don't know if you ever remember pumping up your bike tire. You put all that pressure in it, it heats up. It actually you can feel it getting warmer. Uh, so the Big Bang would have temperatures that are almost essentially infinite. And you can't wow. even have matter at that temperature, so it'd just be what we would think of as pure energy. And as it cools, some of that energy becomes matter. It becomes hydrogen and helium, the two lightest gases. And some of those gases collapse into stars, and then stars accumulate into galaxies. And this is all supposed to happen by itself, without any god, without any sort of um, creative insight into it. And uh, then some of these stars explode and make some of the heavier elements, and those act as seed for planets. And the idea is that our sun is really a third-generation star. It's been recycled from other stars basically three times, and that our planet is left over from the explosion of these stars. And so basically everything that is in our universe today is allegedly the result of this initial Big Bang. So that's the Big Bang in a nutshell. Okay, wow, fascinating. So basically it started uh, 13.8 billion years ago, according to the modern understanding, and uh, we had this singularity, this little dot. It got hot. It started spinning around and exploded. And we ended up with all the matter and, and everything that we see from that explosion. But I guess it started with hydrogen and helium. And, and uh, I read in one of your books uh, a little bit of lithium. That's right. That's right. Those are the and three lightest elements, basically. <laughs> Only tiny amounts of lithium. It's mostly hydrogen and helium. So, so how do we end up with all the other elements? Exactly. That's actually a, a problem that the Big Bangers sometimes, uh, I think, keep from laymen. But the Big Bang, because sometimes, let me back up a little bit. I should explain that sometimes you'll hear people say, well, the, the ratio of elements that we have in the universe, the fact that we have lots of hydrogen and less helium and, and far less of these other elements, is evidence for the Big Bang. That is, the Big Bang predicted those ratios. It's not really true. Those ratios were known at least approximately before the Big Bang was invented. But in any case, the Big Bang can only explain the existence of the three lightest elements. The other 90 or so naturally occurring elements, they can't be produced in a Big Bang. And that was one of the problems 
in uh, in secular views of astronomy for for quite some time, and then astronomers thought that well maybe stars then can produce these heavier elements. The idea is that when that some stars explode, we know that that's true because we see stars occasionally explode. That's called a supernova, and uh, it's believed that when these supernova happen, the conditions in the in the core of that star are sufficiently hot and with sufficient pressure and density to produce the heavier elements, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon, the stuff that we're made of. And so the idea is stars take over for the Big Bang, and they make the remaining nine or so naturally occurring elements. Uh, but the Big Bang can only explain the existence of the first three, and it really can't explain those, not uh, not rationally. But uh, my point is even the secularists will admit it can't account for the remaining nine or so naturally occurring, naturally occurring elements. And, and, and okay, and you're touching on uh, the the population three stars, right? Like, shouldn't we? Is that what you're referring to? That is. We yeah. should, and, and that's actually okay. a problem with the Big Bang because, it, according to the Big Bang model, since the universe, the Big Bang can only produce these three lightest elements, hydrogen, helium, and just tiny amounts of lithium. The first stars would have to be made of only those three elements and nothing else because there wasn't anything else. The Big Bang can't produce anything else. And uh, according to all that we understand about physics, the coolest stars, the red dwarf-type stars, ought to be able to last much longer than 13.8 billion years. They have sufficient fuel, and they burn it at such a slow rate that they should be able to last much longer than that, which means we ought to see stars in the universe today that have at least some stars that have no uh, of these heavier elements, none of the heavier elements, no oxygen, no nitrogen, and so on. And these, these are called population three stars. Uh, that's the name for stars that would be expected if the Big Bang were true. And the interesting thing is we find not one population three star anywhere in the universe. Uh, I think that's a devastating problem with the Big Bang because you'd expect these stars to exist if it were true, and we find not one. All stars that we know of have at least some heavier elements in them, some oxygen, nitrogen, carbon, and so on. Uh, now, stars don't have a lot of those things, but my point is if, populate, if the Big Bang's true, you'd expect to have population three stars, which would have none of those elements. And we just don't find those stars anywhere in the universe. Right, right. Now, now, how do stars form uh, according to the, the, the modern theories of science? Yeah, well, that's another um, <laughs> problem, I should say, for the, for the secular models. Uh, and, and again, it's not, uh, you know, I'm a scientist and I, I, I believe in the methods of science, but once you talk about, you know, what allegedly happened a long time ago and and how things came to be, you know, you're not really doing science at that point. So it's not really what science says about uh, star formation or the universe formation, but uh, the question on many people's minds are what what do uh, secular scientists often believe about that? And, right. and the answer is they believe that the gas that was produced in the Big Bang, the hydrogen and helium, uh, collapsed in on itself in certain places to form stars. And so the idea is that the gravity from all those atoms uh, pulled it, you know, pulled them together to make a star, and that really is very problematic. And the the reason it's problematic is because gas tends to expand. Uh, you know, when you walk into a room, you don't hold your breath just in case all the air should go to one corner of the room. Uh, you expect <laughs> that the air will spread out and fill its container. We, you know, that's something that elementary school students learn is that gas fills its container. And in space, there is no container, so gas just expands infinitely. It just it wants to keep expanding and expanding. Now, theoretically, if you, once you, you know, once you make a star, it, you know, God can make a star and, and pull that gas so close together that its gravity eventually takes over 
And that's why the sun doesn't expand into space. It's made of gas, but its gravity holds it together. But that only works if the star is already small. Uh, when gas is distributed in space, the pressure of that gas is much, much greater than the force of gravity within that gas. And so it's actually problematic as to how you could get stars to form in the first place. And this is something, by the way, that is acknowledged by uh, secular astronomers. They know that there are problems with their models of star formation. And some of their latest ideas are that the only way you could possibly overcome that gas pressure is to have uh, uh, previous stars explode, and that creates shock waves. And they think that maybe that could get up enough pressure that you could overcome the gas pressure and cause a star to form, you know, cause a star to actually start forming. And I I hope you see that there's a chicken and an egg problem there because, you know, if you need previous stars to make new stars, well, how did you get the first stars? That's what I'd like to know. And, uh, of course, uh, biblically, I would say, you know, as I'm a Christian and I I, am, uh, I'm a scientist, of course, and I, but I believe that God created the first stars, and everything that I've seen in the universe is consistent with the idea that stars really don't form. And I know that may shock some people, because you, you'll read in newspapers, you know, this is a star-forming region or whatever, but um, no one has ever seen a star form. No astronomer has ever seen a star form. There are physical uh, reasons to think that maybe it can't even happen. Now, I won't be totally dogmatic on that, but I think it would be very rare because gas tends to expand, and it does not want to collapse in on itself. And there are two, you know, there are two additional problems though with star formation. Even if you could get the gas to overcome its gas pressure and start to collapse in on itself, there are two additional things that would tend to prevent star formation. One of them is uh, the magnetic field. Uh, gas tends to have a weak magnetic field going through it. Uh, just all, all gas everywhere, really, because a lot of it's in a plasma state anyway, and uh, so it's magnetic. And when you when you collapse it, that magnetic field, that magnetic energy increases. It's kind of like if you push, uh, if you've ever taken uh, two magnets and you try to push them together, north end to north end. Well, they repel. They don't want to. They you know they don't want to push in any anymore. And so a star would be like that too. Its magnetic pressure would want to cause it to re-expand and not to collapse in on itself. And then also there's the problem of angular momentum. A gas cloud, it's not going to be totally stationary. It's going to have just a little bit of rotation to it. And when you take something that's huge like a gas cloud and, and, and crush it together as to something the size of a star, uh, that spinningness is going to increase, kind of like a, a skater when she, she's spinning and she pulls her arm in and she speeds up. Um, that, was, that was kind of amazing. That would make me sick to do that. But um, <laughs> in any case, uh, if, if, you know, if a star is going to do that, that, that – um, that angular momentum is going to want to then push the material back out again. And so those three things, gas pressure, magnetic fields, and angular momentum, all work against the idea that stars would just form uh, naturally. Now, once you make a star, it's going to stay that way. That's fine. Its gravity will take over, and and so you don't have to worry about the sun dispersing into space. But um, I think that I think that stars probably don't form at all, or at least it ought to be very, very rare. Okay. Now, skipping back to the secular worldview, what evidence do do uh, secular scientists uh, grab a hold of to say that the Big Bang actually happened? Okay, well, there are um, just a few lines of evidence that they would that they would try to use to argue for that. Now, I don't think any of these are good, of course, but uh, you know, if you'd read a standard textbook, here's what they would argue. Uh, I think the uh, some of them would say, well, the the ratio of the elements, We've, and I've already mentioned that, that the Big Bang really didn't predict that. It's been worked backwards. You can work the math backwards to figure out what the conditions would have to be in the Big Bang to produce the observed 
ratio of the, and, and even then you can only get the three largest elements. The Big Bang can't produce the rest. So I think that's a weak argument right there. Uh, they'll say, well, we observed expansion of the universe. And I say, yes, that, that's certainly true. I think the universe is expanding, and there's good evidence for this. Um, but that doesn't mean that all the galaxies and even space itself were all in the same place at one time. Um, it's kind of like, you know, I, when I give this presentation to audiences, I'll say, you know, some of you are expanding a little bit. You're getting bigger, but that doesn't mean you exploded into existence billions of years ago. Uh, God could have made the universe with finite size, and then he stretched it out a little bit since then. And I think that's probably closer to the truth. There's no reason to assume that the universe was the size of an atom when it started. That doesn't make sense to me. Uh, so they would, they would argue from expansion of the universe. But probably the, the, the silver bullet, the one argument they'd say, well, this is just definitive proof of the Big Bang, is the existence of something that's called the cosmic microwave background. And that requires some explanation. Uh, basically, if you could see microwaves, uh, you could go outside at night and the sky would be faintly glowing with microwaves coming from all directions in space. And uh, that's called the cosmic microwave background. And the Big Bang effectively predicted the existence of that type of uh, microwave background. It predicted that you should see microwaves coming from all directions in space because, remember, according to the, the Big Bang, the universe started out very, very hot, and that's going to produce a lot of energy, a lot of light, uh, heat, and so on. And when it, when it cools off, when the, when the uh, universe stretches those light waves out, they, they become microwaves eventually. And this was discovered back in, I think it was 1964, Penzias and Wilson, uh, they, they weren't really interested in astronomy they were trying to they were working for the bell phone company and they were trying to eliminate this this noise that was coming from all directions in space but big bang folks would say well you see that's something that the big bang predicted and there it is and my counter to that would be first of all um, that's a very weak prediction because uh, we now understand that basically any model of the universe would predict cosmic microwave background if the universe has a sort of average temperature it's going to have microwaves in it uh, you see, anything that has a temperature gives off radiation. Uh, even even you and I right now, as we're having this conversation, we're, we have a temp we have a certain temperature, 98.6, hopefully, and uh, we're, and therefore we're giving off radiation. We're just giving it off in the infrared wavelengths. And so, you know, there are certain cameras like the military folks use where you can actually see heat. You can see that infrared coming off. Now, the universe is much cooler than that, but it would have to emit microwaves if it has any temperature at all. And uh, that's what we see. So it's kind of a weak prediction because every model would predict that. It's just that at the time, the competing model to the Big Bang, which is called the steady state model, uh, they hadn't realized that their model would predict that too. And so the Big Bang saw that, saw the discovery of the CMB as a triumph of one model over the competing model. And then the other thing I would point out is the cosmic microwave background does not have the characteristics that Big Bang uh, supporters expected it to have. They predicted that it should have uh, very large variations. Let's you know call them hot spots and cold spots, and uh, sufficient to act as seeds for galaxies to form, to, for the gas to collapse and form stars and galaxies and so on. And in fact, the variations we find are very very small, much much too small to account for uh, the, you know the existence of galaxies and so on. They're at least ten times smaller than the Big Bang folks predicted. So. One, it's a weak prediction, and two, it's not the right kind of cosmic microwave background. I think those two together uh, really cancel that out as a successful prediction. If, if they want to make a, if they want to call it a successful prediction, I would say, well, okay, but it's a pretty weak one, and a, a good model ought to make many successful predictions, and that's really the only successful prediction the Big Bang has ever made. Yeah, and, and is it not just riddled with problems? It really is. Like, yeah. 
for example, like in your book, uh, actually, this would be in, in uh, the uh, new Answers book, too. You have a really good chapter on uh, the Big Bang, and you mentioned the flatness problem. Yes. That's just one example of something. And, and I, I picked that one because um, that's something that you'll find in, in standard textbooks. If they're honest, you'll find that. Um, in other words, this is something that secularists are aware of. They're aware that this is a problem. They think maybe they have solutions to it. That's fine. But uh, the flatness problem has to do with the rate of expansion of the universe. The universe is expanding at, you might say, just the right rate, uh, such that um, it's not going to uh, collapse in on itself, and yet it's not going to fly away, you know, pushing all the galaxies to, to an extremely great distance in a short period of time. Uh, it's, it's kind of... Um, it's kind of traveling at its own escape velocity, really. It's kind of like if I took a baseball and I threw it up in the air, not very fast, it'll fall back down. If I threw it up really fast, it would zip away from the earth. I mean, if I had that ability to do that. And if I threw it at just the right rate, the baseball would travel at escape velocity, which means it would never come back to the earth, but it would, it would continually slow down, slow down, but never quite stop and never quite come back. And the universe is traveling at almost exactly its own escape velocity, which means the galaxies will continue to move away from each other at the slowest possible rate that they could without actually collapsing back in on themselves. And it's, you know, it's remarkable that it's exactly that number. And in the secular view, there's no reason why it should be. The laws of physics allow uh, any possible range of velocities from you know, from zero, or the universe could even be collapsing in on itself, or it could be expanding at an astronomical rate. And it, why is it balanced at just that right expansion rate? And so that would be an example of the, the flatness problem. We call that a flat universe or flat space-time. That's just one problem for the Big Bang that they have to explain um, among many. Right, right. And that, and that, in a sense, kind of fits into that whole anthropic principle uh, concept that there's just so many things about uh, the universe, about our solar system uh, that just point towards some kind of design. Uh, and, and no, you know, I, I don't want to go down the road of intelligent design too much because, well, I, I believe in, in the God of the Bible, but certainly, I mean, we see design everywhere we look. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, that's certainly um, true. Yeah. And, you know, a lot, of, a lot of secularists even realize that. And they, I think, you know, people talk about the atheistic scientists. I think most scientists probably are not atheists, but they don't, at the same time, they don't want to accept the God of the Bible. And so they're inclined to say, well, there's some sort of deity. Yeah, there's got to be some kind of mind behind the universe, but they really don't want to accept what the Bible has to say about that God. And that's a shame, because God, you see, God's revealed himself. He's, he's told us his characteristics and why he made the universe and, 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 and our relationship with him and how we can have a better relationship with him and so on. But people don't, they don't want to uh, accept that. The Bible tells us that. God's made himself known to everyone, but people suppress that truth and unrighteousness. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, don't get me wrong. I really do appreciate the the intelligent design movement and what's coming out of it. Uh, I think it's a great halfway point, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, absolutely. So, okay, during the Big Bang, everything exploded into existence. Apparently, uh, there should be equal amounts of matter and antimatter. That's right. Want to elaborate yeah. about that? That's probably my favorite uh, problem with the Big Bang because it's so easy to understand. It's called the baryon number problem. Uh, baryons are things like atoms uh, or electrons and or not electrons, but protons and neutrons are baryons. And uh, 
we can, you know, the, the idea with the Big Bang is it starts as pure energy, and as that energy cools, it becomes matter. It becomes hydrogen and helium gas, protons and neutrons, which form atoms and make hydrogen and helium. And uh, that's the one aspect that we can actually theoretically test in a laboratory, because we can take energy and make from it matter. That's, that can be done with particle accelerators. You, you take, you know, slam particles together at extremely high speeds, and from that energy, you can produce new particles. But our experience has been that every time we take energy and turn it into matter, every single time we get an equal amount of antimatter. And antimatter is the same as ordinary matter, except the charges of the particles are reversed. So instead of having a positively charged proton in your atom and a negatively charged electron circling it, an anti-atom would have what they call anti-protons, they're negatively charged protons, uh, followed by um, positrons, positively charged electrons orbiting around the outside. So it's the opposite of ordinary matter. And uh, we can make antimatter in a laboratory. Every time you take energy and turn it into matter, you get an equal amount of antimatter. And every time you make antimatter, you get an equal amount of matter. You can't make one without the other. They have to go together. And so it would stand to reason, then, if the Big Bang were true, and all the matter in our universe was once energy that changed into matter, it would have to be the case that there should be an equal amount of antimatter in the universe. Right. And uh, that's... That's a problem because when we look in the universe, we don't find antimatter. It's all matter. All the stuff that you see, all the, ga- all the stars and galaxies, those are all made of ordinary matter. And there are spectroscopic ways to, to discern that and so on. Um, but that's agreed upon. We all agree the universe is matter only. There's only trace amounts of antimatter anywhere, and those are always made locally by basically natural forms of particle accelerators, and they're immediately destroyed. So the universe is matter only. Uh, if the Big Bang were true, it ought to be equal amounts of matter and antimatter. Where's the antimatter? And so that's a good question you could ask somebody who's a Big Bang supporter. You could say, where's the antimatter? Because the Big Bang should have produced it, and we just don't see it. Now, I happen to think that the fact that the universe is essentially matter only is actually a design feature, because when matter and antimatter touch, they destroy each other and produce. they go back to energy, you see. And so if, right. you, if you ever meet a person made of antimatter, don't shake their hand because <laughs> that would be catastrophic for both of you. Um, and so the fact that God made the universe matter only is because we wouldn't be able to have this conversation if he made it, you know, equal amounts of matter and antimatter because as soon as they'd touch, as soon as any two touch, they would release just an enormous amount of energy. And, uh, and it is an enormous amount of energy, too. That's why uh, in all the sci-fi stuff, they, they, you know, everything's powered by antimatter. It's an incredibly efficient source of power. That's why the, the Enterprise uses uh, antimatter in its warp engines and so on. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, it's, uh, gonna... it's very destructive, actually, when it's, when it's uh, unchanneled. So. <laughs> I was going to say that would make for a great supervillain in, like, an X-Men or, or you know, one of the Marvel movies. Yeah, if you um, can control it, yeah. Yep. Uh, oh, boy. So uh, in your book, Taking Back Astronomy, you also talk about uh, monopoles. What are those, and how, and, and how is that an argument against the Big Bang? Yeah, monopoles are theoretical particles that uh, basically, the long story short, the Big Bang predicts that they should exist, and they don't exist. And so that's that's long story short. Basically, the, mono, the idea of a monopole is it's like a magnet, and you, you know, just like the magnets you'd play with. You know, I used to play with them when I was a kid, and you'd push them around and stuff. But magnets that you play with have a north pole and a south pole. And, you know, north and south, they attract to each other, but north and north, they repel and so on. And most people are familiar with that. A monopole is a theoretical particle that has only one magnetic pole. It would just be a, just be a north or just be a south. 
and uh, they don't exist anywhere. Every every magnet we find in the universe has both a north pole and a south pole. Uh, theoretically, you could have there, there, the laws of physics allow for monopoles to exist, and the laws of physics, uh, as we understand them, uh, indicate that these particles should be produced at extremely high temperature. Uh, much higher than even in the core of a star. But if, as you recall, the Big Bang is supposed to start with essentially infinite temperature. And so that ought to be hot enough to produce monopoles because infinity is pretty hot. <laughs> so, right, right. Um, and yet we find no monopoles anywhere in the universe. It's kind of an interesting, uh, I think it's an interesting aspect of physics that God chose apparently not to create them. Because we do, ha- we do find the electric equivalent of that. You, you know, electric charge... You, you can have negative and positive, and you can find particles that are just negative. Electrons, for example, they're just negative, and and protons are just positive, and so on. But with a magnet, huh. with a, every magnet in the universe comes with a north pole and a south pole, and there's not a single monopole that's ever been detected anywhere in the universe, and yet they ought to be abundant if the Big Bang were true. So that's called the monopole problem, if you believe in the Big Bang, and it's a feature if you believe in creation. Huh. Now, this is a little bit off topic, but... Um, talking about magnetic fields and uh, doesn't Russell Humphreys have some kind of a planetary magnetic field theory that uh, he talks about well he made some predictions I remember hearing him speak once and uh, I remember him making some predictions about uh, Uranus and and, uh, Neptune and their magnetic fields and turns out he was right which is well yes but it's good science yeah (laughs) that's right he's got a model for uh, I, I think it's a very good model for um, that um, basically gives an indication of what the initial field strength of the planets would have been when God first created them, and he has good good reasons for that that I won't go into. But basically, um, given that God starts these planets with these certain magnetic fields, and uh, we, magnetic fields naturally decay with time. They're caused by electrical current, as far as we know. Earth's got current going in its core and perhaps in its mantle, but mainly in the core. And uh, that electrical current causes uh, it to have a magnetic field. That's what produces magnetic fields. And as that electrical current encounters resistance, Earth's magnetic field decays. And so our magnetic field is actually getting a little bit weaker every year. And we've been able to measure this for almost two centuries now. We've been able to measure the decay of Earth's magnetic field, and it is decaying. Uh, There's no doubt that the total energy is dropping. You know, some people have tried to argue against that. Well, it's, you know, they say, well, it's just changing direction or something. No, it's dro- the total energy is dropping. That's been measured. We'd expect that on the basis of physics. And uh, the other planets in the solar system also have magnetic fields. Basically, uh, Dr. Humphrey's model is able to say, given that God created the planets about 6,000 years ago, and given that they, that magnetic field's been decaying for 6,000 years, he can compute, based on the composition of the planets, what their current magnetic field should be, and he's right. He's able to get the right number for all of the planets, actually, including uh, including their moons, interestingly. Uh, and he'd say, well, you know, that's fine. But the really interesting thing is, in, in, in several cases, he was able to predict it before the magnetic fields were measured. And uh, so his, his model correctly explains the magnetic field of the Earth, of Mars, of Jupiter, of Venus, of Mercury. But those were known already at the time. And so you could accuse him of, you know, backworking that into the model. But the neat thing is his model also predicted the magnetic fields of Uranus and Neptune before those magnetic fields were measured by the Voyager spacecraft. And Dr. Humphreys was right on in his prediction. The uh, secularists were way off because they were assuming that those planets are billions of years old and therefore the magnetic fields should have uh, petered down to almost nothing by now. 
and yet uh, they're, they're the strength that Dr. Humphreys predicted, he was right on. He was right about uh, Jupiter's moons having evidence of remnant magnetism on those and Mars having remnant magnetism. And he also predicted that Mercury's magnetic field should decay appreciably between when the, when the um, Mariner spacecraft went past it in the 70s and when the Messenger spacecraft uh, went past it just a few years ago. And that's since been confirmed. There is evidence that Mercury's magnetic field has decayed by about the amount that Dr. Humphreys predicted. And so that's, I think that's a great example of somebody who, like myself, he, he's a Christian, he stands on the Word of God, and he's able to make correct predictions because he uses science the way it was intended to be used based on the information God gives us in his Word and, and combining that with our best guesses about science. And he's able to make successful predictions about how the universe is today, and he's right on. But, you know, the interesting oh, thing is, even apart from Dr. Humphrey's model, j- just the rate at which Earth's magnetic field is decaying is a very powerful evidence that our planet is not millions or billions of years old. Uh, the magnetic field decay, it's, as far as we can tell, it's an exponential decay. That's what we would expect. That's consistent with the, um, both the math and the, the observations that we've made. And uh, based on the current rate of decay, based on that exponential fitting that curve back, if you work the math backwards, about 6,000 years ago, Earth's magnetic field would have been something like 20 times stronger than it is today, which is fine. That would give us a little extra um, increase from cosmic radiation. And so um, Adam and Eve would have enjoyed a, a superior climate to what we have today in terms of protection from you know, cosmic rays and so on. But if you run the math back, even 60,000 years, Earth's magnetic field would have been stronger than that of a neutron star, which is oh, wow. sufficient to rip the atoms of your body apart. So, I mean, it's, and that's just 60,000 years. That's not anywhere close to a million years, let alone a billion years, let alone 4.5 billion years. So it's, it's a really tight constraint on the age of the Earth that is consistent with the biblical time scale, but not even remotely consistent with the uh, secular time scale. How do they deal with that? Well, they would assume, they would say, well, it can't therefore be an exponential decay. And so they would say, regardless of our observations, regardless of, of what the physics, you know, what we'd expect based on physics, it must actually be an oscillating magnetic field. So they believe in something mm-hmm. called a magnetic dynamo. And the idea of a dynamo is it's something like the alternator in your car. The alternator in your car takes mechanical energy and turns it into electrical energy that charges your battery. And so the idea is Earth has, you know, mechanical motions in its mantle and so on that somehow, that somehow regenerate its magnetic field over time. Uh, I would argue there's absolutely no evidence for a magnetic dynamo going on in the Earth today. Uh, after all, the alternator in your car is a fairly sophisticated machine. It has to have parts working together in just the right way to uh, effectively take mechanical energy and turn it into electrical energy. Now, we do think Mm. that during the flood year, um, continents were moving very rapidly, and so you could have something like that during the flood year, but there's no mechanism to produce it today. And all our observations today are consistent with a simple exponential decay, the kind that we would expect if if there was just current in Earth's core that was generating the magnetic field. Interesting. And so when uniformitarianism, uniformitarianism uh, works for them, they're going to hold on to it. But when it doesn't, they just kind of scrap it. That is so right. I, I, you know, I've, I've experienced many situations where that is the case. Uh, uniformitarianism, of course, being the idea that rates and conditions are basically like they are today or the present is the key to the past. And I find that, you know, secularists will reject the Bible in favor of the assumption of uniformitarianism, because, you know, you can't have a worldwide flood because there's no worldwide flood today. Everything's, you know, being built by slow, gradual conditions. And yet, there are many examples of where you push 
those slow gradual conditions, and you still get a young Earth. And I find in those instances they're willing to throw out and say, well, I guess uniformitarianism doesn't work there, but it's still, we still think it works generally. Uh, that's very inconsistent, very, very inconsistent. Some other examples of that, uh, the recession of the moon. The moon's actually moving away from the Earth at a rate of about an inch and a half a year. And if you work that rate backwards, um, by the way, it's, that's what caught, you know, the moon causes tides. It pulls on Earth's oceans. And then because Earth rotates faster than the moon orbits, the oceans get ahead of the moon. They pull forward on it, and that gives the moon energy and causes it to move out. So it's the tidal interaction that causes the moon to move away. If you run the movie backwards, that means the moon would have been closer to the Earth in the past. You run it back uh, 6,000 years, the moon would have been 730 feet closer to the Earth. Not a big change. Um, <laughs> but if you run it back billions of years, and by the way, you have to do the math right on this. You have to use calculus to do it correctly, because as the moon gets closer to the Earth, the tidal bulges would get bigger, right? You're going to have larger tides, and that yeah. pulls on it faster, and they get even bigger, and it pulls on it faster, and so on. Um, you, you do the math right, and you find that the Earth and the moon would have been touching uh, at about 1.4 billion years ago, which may sound like a lot, but keep in mind, in the secular view, the Earth and the Moon are supposed to be 4.5 billion years old. And so that's a problem, because I'm taking the current rate, and based on you know good math that we understand, you run that rate back, and you find it, the Earth and the Moon cannot be as old as the secularists believe. And, of course, you know what their answer to that is. They'd say, well, apparently the rate's not been constant. Apparently it's unusually fast today in which case they're violating their own assumption of uniformitarianism. So you know, it goes back to what you said. They're willing to throw that out when it doesn't work, and yet they hold to it tenaciously when it gives them answers that they like. Hmm. Yeah, right, right. I guess another example of that might be uh, like the spiral galaxies and how they should be all wound up by now. Yeah, in fact, I just um, last year, uh, yeah, I guess it was about a year ago, I did a little uh, computer simulation. I was curious to see how strong that effect is. Uh, the reason that works, by the way, spiral galaxies rotate differentially, which means the inner portions of the galaxy rotate at a faster angular rate than the outer portions. And so, you know, it's like runners on the inside track. They have an advantage than runners on the outside of the track because they can complete the circuit in less time. And so galaxies, spiral galaxies are constantly in the process of twisting themselves up. And they rotate rather slowly. Uh, so it would take something, you know, on the order of, you know, millions of years to complete a rotation. But the problem is, in the secular view, these spiral galaxies are supposed to be 10 billion years old. That's supposed to be a typical age for a spiral galaxy. And so I ran a computer simulation based on the current measured velocities of the stars to see how long does it take spiral galaxies to wrap up. And the answer is, in well less than a billion years, they are wrapped beyond recognition. So they're supposed to be 10 billion years old. But if they really were that old, they would be—they would not look anything like a spiral galaxy. They would look like a uniform disk, almost, almost like a old-fashioned phonograph record, just like with a groove that just is really, really tightly wound. And of course, we find not a single spiral galaxy anywhere in the universe that looks like a 10 billion-year-old spiral galaxy should look. And so, I think that's very compelling evidence that the galaxies are much, much younger than that, and certainly be consistent with um, the biblical time scale of thousands of years. And now that argument doesn't put a real tight constraint on it because it could be up to, you know, even up to millions of years, they'd still look spiral. But it certainly eliminates the secular idea that they're billions of years old. And in that case, the, the secularists um, would probably agree with me in terms of my math, but they, they would say, well, there must be some process that produces new spiral arms as the old ones are destroyed by this tight wrapping. 
And so if you've heard of spiral density wave theory, that's one explanation for how new spiral arms are allegedly formed. Of course, it's got problems of its own. Um, you can always tack on a rescuing device, right? I mean, when the evidence right. doesn't fit your view, you can always come up with some kind of conjecture to explain it away. Uh, the nice thing about creation is you don't really have to do that. The evidence, I think, fits very naturally with what we'd expect based on, on what the Bible teaches. And the more that I examine the universe, the more I find that uh, the Bible got it exactly right. Amen to that. Um, another interesting, uh, I guess, perhaps violation of the uniformitarianism uh, idea is uh, blue stars. Yeah. They, they burn really hot, really fast, but we still have them. That's right. Yeah, blue stars are the are the most uh, luminous type of stars, or the brightest stars that exist are blue stars. And uh, they tend to be the most massive, too, uh, the heaviest stars. And so um, in a star, a star is its own fuel, right? It's made of hydrogen uh, little, and bits of helium, and it, it's able to fuse that hydrogen into helium as a power source. And so it's, it's constantly using up itself, its own material, uh, converting it into uh, helium. And uh, blue stars use, use up that rate. Uh, they have a very fast um, rate of using up their fuel because they're, they're very luminous. The candle that burns twice as bright lasts half as long. And blue stars are the brightest candles of them all. They really burn like crazy. And uh, so the way I like to put it is uh, blue stars are kind of like the SUV of the star world. They have a very large gas tank, <laughs> but they get very poor gas mileage. And so they just can't go very far in time. And if you do the calculations, the, the very hottest blue stars can't last more than something like a million years. And again, that may sound like a lot, but keep in mind that secularists believe the universe is 13.8 billion years old. So, you know, over a thousand times uh, longer than that. And so there, there really there shouldn't be any blue stars left if they were uh, that old, if they were billions of years old. And yet we find lots of blue stars all throughout the universe. You can go out... On a clear night, look at Orion's belt. Those are blue stars. Those are uh, O-type stars in Orion's belt. Those are the hot ones that can't last uh, billions of years. So we find those throughout the universe. In fact, spiral galaxies, the spiral arms, have a very high proportion of uh, blue stars compared to the the bulge. And so that's that's a further indication of... um, uh, of the youth of the universe. The spiral galaxies really just are <laughs> the death knell of this idea of billions of years because they get several different lines of evidence that indicate that they're much younger than that. And again, my secular colleagues, I mean, the math is so conclusive on this, they won't even bother to, to, to argue that blue stars can last billions of years. They know better. And so their argument would have to be that, well, apparently... As blue, as you know, old blue stars die off, new ones replace them somehow, and so that goes back to this idea that you know gas somehow collapses in on itself and somehow is able to overcome gas pressure and magnetic fields, and somehow is able to, uh, to overcome angular momentum and form a new star, uh, which we see not happening anywhere at all in the universe, and which we know has physics problems. But see, my secular colleagues have to believe that because we see blue stars and they're unwilling to concede the possibility that the universe might be young. So they're forced into believing in something that really just doesn't make a lot of sense. Hmm. Yeah. Now, okay, so the blue stars are burning really hot, and we shouldn't, I mean, we really shouldn't see any at all. Uh, Aren't there many really hot planets that, I mean, they should be, cooled off by now and and same type of idea with some planets? Yeah, it's it's a similar concept. Now, planets don't produce their own heat. So, uh, you know, stars, of course, are producing power by converting hydrogen to helium, but they only, you know, stars only have so much fuel. Now, with planets, 
they start with a certain heat, their their heated formation in the secular view, and they just cool off with time. So star, so planet, I'm sorry, planets just cool off with time. They once they form, allegedly in the secular model, they just they radiate that heat to space and they cool off. It's kind of like a potato when you take it out of the microwave. You know, at first it's nice and warm, and you can feel the heat coming off of it. And as that heat comes off of it, it loses energy, and the potato cools off. And it doesn't take real long uh, for a potato because it's pretty small. Now, a planet's much larger, and so a planet theoretically could um, last, you know, a lot longer and continue to give off heat. Um, and, but it can't do it for billions of years. And so planets like Jupiter and Saturn and Neptune, for example, they all have lots of internal heat. The, the three, three of the four big planets in our solar system have lots of internal heat. Uh, more than you could really explain if these planets are billions of years old. Why haven't they cooled off by now? And now that, by the way, that's true of planets like the Earth as well. But with the Earth, um, you could argue that, that uh, radioactivity continues to produce new heat. You see, radioactivity does produce a small amount of heat. And my secular colleagues uh, assume, although I don't know that they've ever done the calculation, but they assume that the reason the Earth's still warm is because it's got radioactivity. But Jupiter and the big planets, they don't have radioactive elements. They're made of the light stuff. They're made of hydrogen and helium with only trace amounts of anything heavier than that. So they, huh. you, can't, you can't use that explanation for the big planets. And yet they're still warm, or at least three out of four of them are warm. And uh, why, why is Uranus not warm? I think God did that just to confuse the evolutionists. <laughs> you know, Neptune and Uranus are almost identical in every way, and yet Neptune is warm and Uranus is cold. And so um, I just think that's an example of God's diversity. I'd expect that kind of diversity in the universe, but it makes no sense if those two planets have a common origin, why they should differ so much in temperature, uh, why Neptune should be so warm. Neptune actually gives off 2.6 times as much energy as it receives from the sun. So it's, it's, it's warmer, much warmer than it should be if it were billions of years old. It's dumping that energy into space. So that's another indication that the solar system is much younger than the billions of years that my secular colleagues uh, believe in. Huh. Okay. Uh, another thing I read about, and at this point I can't even remember where I read it, but uh, star clusters, are they not also a problem uh, for an old universe? Uh, maybe. I'd have, to, I'd have to look into the details of that. Um, I, I, I know it's a problem getting stars to form in the first place, so that's a bit of an issue. Uh, and I do remember in grad school when we were talking about how, because the idea is that like these um, uh, clusters like the Pleiades, for example, the Seven Sisters, which you can see in the in the um, winter skies uh, off the constellation Taurus, um, it's a group of about you know a few hundred stars there. You can see seven of them naked eye, and um, the idea, but they're they're blue they're blue type stars, O and B type stars, mostly B type, which are relatively hot. And they have to be recent in the secular view because they can't, you know, they can't, they can't last billions of years. Uh, but there's a problem, though. Once you make an O-type star, it has very powerful stellar winds, which would tend to disperse gas into space even further and would tend to prevent the formation of other O-type stars. And so one of the issues that we covered that when I was in grad school was how do you, how do you possibly produce a cluster of all these blue-type stars? And uh, I, I've never used that as a knockdown dragout argument because there, there might be an explanation for that that makes sense. But um, I'm not sure that that's I'm not sure that that's easily explained in light of uh, what we know about physics. Right, right. Um, also, another problem. Uh, what about supernovas? Uh, I've read that if the universe is really as old as they're believing, 14 billion years, 
that we should have far more supernovas that we can see than we actually do. Yes, yeah, that concerns uh, the, what's left over from the supernova. After it explodes, it leaves what we call a supernova remnant, and that's basically, um, you know, when, when the star explodes, it, it, that gas is released into space, and you have a very rapidly expanding shell, and it's, it's very hot, of course, because the, the supernova involves tremendous energies. And we do see some of these supernova remnants. We see some in our galaxy. We see some in other galaxies. But the idea is, that we, I mean, we, we know roughly the rate at which supernovae occur because we, we can watch them. We can see them happen from time to time. We see them occasionally in our own galaxy, about once per century in our galaxy, and other galaxies have rates that are kind of comparable to that. So we know the rate at which it happens. And if the universe were billions of years old, and you get a, and you get a um, supernova remnant every century, well, you ought to have a lot of supernova remnants in this galaxy and in other galaxies. Um, and so and we see actually very few. Uh, and I've been... Up until recently, I've been kind of reticent to use that argument because I wasn't sure how strong it was. I wasn't sure, you know, should we really be able to see supernova remnants, how, you know, how clearly and so on. But I, I must admit, I, I, I've changed my mind on that. I, th- I now think it's a very strong argument because I, I got to hear a presentation by uh, Keith Davies at the Christian Research Society meeting, and he's done some research on supernova remnants in uh, the, uh, I think it's the Large Magellanic Cloud, which is a nearby uh, satellite galaxy to ours. And it's interesting because we know the rate, again, at which these supernova remnants occur, and we have a nice view of this galaxy because there's nothing blocking it. It's, it's, um, you can't see it from uh, where I live because I'm in the northern hemisphere, but if you live in Australia, you get a spectacular view of that galaxy. Very clear. And they've measured the number of supernova remnants in that galaxy. And, you know, it's consistent with about 6,000 years age for that galaxy. You could push it maybe to 7,000, maybe 8,000, but you can't push it anywhere close to millions or billions of years. And so I think supernova remnants are a very powerful confirmation of the biblical timescale of a few thousand years. Is, is there any other arguments uh, that you might uh, want to mention that show that the universe is actually younger than 14 billion years? Oh, sure. I mean, there are lots of things like that. In fact, there's evidence for youth everywhere in the universe. Uh, but some, some are, you know, some arguments are stronger than others because... Uh, in some cases, you could imagine a process that would, you know, that, that could regenerate uh, whatever it is. But um, comets, for example, I think comets are a pretty good argument for the youth oh, yeah. of the solar system. Uh, comets can't last millions or billions of years. Comets are made up of ice and dirt, and they orbit the sun in elliptical paths. So they kind of go far away. But when they come close to the sun, that icy material gets vaporized. It gets blasted away by solar heat and radiation. And that's what forms a comet's tail. And so every time you see a comet, it's getting smaller. It's losing mass, and they just can't do that for that long. They don't have that much mass available. A typical comet, the size of the nucleus, would be just a few miles across. And oh wow! Yeah, they're not very big. In fact, the largest comet we know of was Hale-Bopp, and it was about uh, oh, I forgot, oh, I'm going to mess up the number now, but it was you know tens <laughs> tens of miles across, uh, maybe 40 miles or something like that. But you know, that's as big as they get, and most of them are much smaller than that. So they're just not that big, and um, they just don't last that long. I used the SOHO spacecraft in, in my doctoral uh, research, and SOHO is designed to point right at the sun, and it's got a special instrument that can block sunlight, and it sees comets as they go back behind the sun. And I've seen many comets that have gone behind the sun, and they are totally obliterated in one pass. Huh. Yeah, I've seen comets that go behind the sun, and that's it. They are no more. Um, maybe you heard, uh, I think it was about a year ago, they had comet Ison that was supposed to come around and be a spectacular comet. It turned out to be kind of a dust. Right. But there is no more comet Ison. It's gone. 
it went behind the sun and it was destroyed by uh, the this heat and radiation. It did not survive the trip. So comets, they just don't last that long. We know that. We, we can see them disintegrating. And yet, if the solar system is billions of years old, why do we still have comets? Uh, my secular colleagues would say, well, there must be a comet generator that makes new ones, which they call the Oort cloud. If you've heard of the Oort cloud, it's the idea of uh, trillions of, let's call them, potential comets orbiting way beyond Neptune where they're not detectable in kind of a spherical orbit or quasi-spherical and then, or circular. And then every now and then one of them gets kicked into the inner solar system and becomes a brand new comet. And so, uh, again, they've got this undetectable comet generator that kind of saves the day and allows them to believe in billions of years uh, despite evidence to the contrary. But I would say that there's no evidence for an Oort cloud. That's just something they've invented. They just pulled that right out of the hat. And uh, is that really very scientific, just to sort of invent things like that to explain away the evidence? I, I don't think so. I think the evidence is a lot more consistent with the biblical time scale of uh, thousands of years. Lots of things like that, too, that... You know, dust in the solar system and, you know, solar wind and radiation tends to clear out dust. And so if the solar system were billions of years old, why does it still have so much dust? And, you know, some of these arguments are stronger than others, but I think all of them are at least indicative of the biblical time scale of thousands of years. Right, right. Okay, so here's the question that everybody asks you over and over and over. Uh, if the universe is billions of years old, uh, and we can see light coming from these stars, billions of light years out there. Uh, uh, well, yeah, doesn't the fact that we can see those that light from billions of light years away, doesn't that prove that the universe is billions of years old? Yeah, I, get that, I do get that question a lot. <laughs> the, uh, the answer, and uh, the answer that I'm going to give, and I could be wrong about this, but there, there's more than one way to do it. There's more than one way to get light to travel very large distances in a shorter amount of time than my secular colleagues would like to admit. Um, but the answer that I, well, that I think is the right one it has to do with um, Einstein's theory of relativity. And it gets a little bit complicated, but basically the speed of light in one direction is not something that we can measure. Anytime we actually true and blue measure the speed of light, it's always on a round trip. Like I take a light beam, shoot it out to a mirror, bounce it back, and get the time going out and, the t- you know, and back. And the entire trip takes, let's say, two seconds. Uh, people would assume often that it takes one second to go out and one second to come back. But according to Einstein, that's not something that can ever be proved or measured. He said the one-way speed of light, the speed of light on a, on a one-way trip, is something that we actually define. And uh, it's, it's kind of like the number of inches in a foot. Why are there 12 inches in a foot? Um, what property of nature causes that? Well, no property of nature causes that. Human beings decided that that's the number they wanted to put. Uh, and it's the, the one-way speed of light, it's counterintuitive because you think, well, it has to be one speed or the other. It's counterintuitive, but actually the speed of light can be defined so, such that when it's moving toward an observer, it's infinite. And then its speed you know, in different directions is uh, slower than that. And this is what's called an anisotropic synchrony convention. Anisotropic means different, different directions. And synchrony convention is how you define time. Uh, at different places in the universe. Uh, the bottom line is you can get light from the most distant galaxies to the Earth in no time at all. And this is all orthodox physics that Einstein understood and would agree with. And, in fact, there have even been secularists that have used uh, that model for different reasons. But uh, and, uh, Satchel and Sarker, for example, uh, wrote a paper some time back where they pointed out that uh, you could, you could uh, define the speed of light to be instantaneous when it's moving toward the observer, and uh, that would allow you to um, uh, mark time in a, in a slightly different way than 
is uh, standard, but it still, you know, it works, and it's perfectly legitimate physics, and the details are a little bit complicated. But I have written on this. It's In fact, it's in our latest, one of our latest books called Creation Basics and Beyond. I've got a chapter that um, gives what I just told you, but in more detail, and gives you a little bit more background information on that. Bottom line is okay. you can get light here instantaneously, actually. It takes no time at all to get light from the most distant galaxies to the Earth, and you can do that in a way that matches with known physics. Okay. Yeah, I, I have that book. I just haven't cracked it open until right now. Okay. Well, there you go. Too many books and so little time. Yeah, I understand. I have that problem, too. <laughs> so, um, uh, I, I guess on that same note, then, uh, we have distant large galaxies with old stars in them. Does that fit into that same uh, theory, basically? We, I mean, we can see out in space. We see these old stars... And we're, we should be seeing a young star if it's, that light has been traveling here this whole time, right? Well, actually, we don't see, um, you know, when, when you look at a star, you don't, see, it doesn't come with a label telling you how old it is. Uh, <laughs> you know, secularists would like you to believe that. They'll say, you know, look at the, these stars are very old. Well, they don't know that. They don't know how old the star is. They don't know how long it's been around. Um, but I would say that we find at all distances in space evidence of youth. Uh, for example, red, or, or blue star, we talked about previously blue stars, they can't be old. And yet we find blue stars nearby. We find blue stars in the farthest galaxies, at least as far out as we can detect them anyway. And so that tells me that all these galaxies are young. They have to be because they have blue stars in them. And you'd say, well, what about the red stars? Well, they're young too. It's just that red stars have the potential to last a lot longer than blue stars. But just because a star is red doesn't mean it's old. It just means it has the potential to last a very long time. Like when I, you know, when I get a Toyota Camry, uh, brand new, uh, I know it's going to last a long time because they're well made. Yeah, I know it's going to last, hopefully, 200,000 miles, but um, that doesn't mean it starts with that, you know, with that distance on it. And so all the stars, I would say, are young, and with blue stars, they have to be young. Doesn't the Big Bang also have a starlight time problem? Yeah, it sure does, it's, and it's called the horizon problem. And it's, um, it's the same type of problem as a uh, starlight problem, but basically in the, in the, um, in the Big Bang view, uh, the universe is supposed to start off with hot spots and cold spots in different places when the universe is very, very small. And today, the temperature fluctuations are very small, and so the hot spots and cold spots have all evened out. And the only way that can happen is if light travels or energy travels from the hot spot to the cold spot, and the fastest that you can travel is the speed of light. That's the fastest speed. And so... Um, and, and yet, in the secular view, there hasn't been enough time for light to travel from the hot spots to the cold spots, because these, these could be on the opposite sides of the visible universe today. And so even in the secular view, they have an issue of trying to get light to travel uh, a greater distance than seems possible within their model. And so I think, actually, when it comes to light travel time, we're in a much better position than they are, because I think the, the model that I mentioned to you previously, the Anisotropic Synchronate Convention, uh, that will allow creationists to get light from the galaxies to Earth in no time at all, but it won't solve the Big Bang's light travel time problem. So really, when people ask about light travel time problem, I say, well, we don't have that in our model. We've, we've solved that. How's it going for you? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, okay. So if the universe really is young, uh, what does that mean? I mean, what do we do with that now? Well, I think it's a confirmation that the Bible's right. It, uh, it, it tells us that the Bible's right about the age of the universe 
and that's one of the you know that's one of the big issues where people say yes I understand the Bible's right about Jericho that's been archaeologically excavated we know that happened in the city of Ai and so on and and all these other places I mean archaeology has always confirmed uh, scripture at least eventually and uh, you know we know that happened but really did God really make in six days and did He really make just a few thousand years ago doesn't science prove billions of years and the answer is no science is our friend science confirms the history that the Bible teaches, and I would I would suggest, therefore, that that gives us increased confidence that the Bible really is what it claims to be. It really is the Word of God. It can be trusted, not only in matters of science and history, but it can be trusted on matters of uh, salvation. Uh, when the Bible tells us that we need to place our faith in Christ, we need to repent of our sins and, and uh, receive Christ's payment for our sins that he paid for on the cross, we can trust mm. that, that that's the only way to, uh, to eternal life. Yes. Amen. Well said. Um, okay. So, friends, uh, many of the things we've talked about today, we've uh, actually, I've been pulling much of this from uh, Jason Lyle's book, Taking Back Astronomy. Uh, awesome book. Um, it has so many things we've talked about today in more detail and so much more. Uh, colorful pictures, glossy pages, just a great work. Good book. Uh, Jason, tell me about Discerning Truth. That's a book about how to spot fallacies in arguments. And uh, I, I've, a lot of people have said they've really benefited from that book. It's an easy read. There's there's sh- very short chapters. There's one fallacy, that, especially fallacies that, that come up in debates on origins, because I find that my evolutionary colleagues, um, I love them, God bless them, but they make mistakes in reasoning left and right. And uh, this book is to help you to spot those errors, Not like uh, equivocation, where they change the meaning of a word within an argument, like the word evolution, which can mean descent from a common ancestor, or it can mean change in a ge- generic sense. And a lot of times evolutionists will try to prove one type of change using the other, and that's an example of an equivocation fallacy. Or reification, where they give uh, concrete or personal characteristics to an abstraction, like nature, nature designs, and things like, well, no, nature doesn't design, God designs. Nature can't do that because it doesn't have a mind. Um, So those are examples of fallacies that often come up in evolutionary arguments, and that book is a very easy, very easy read, and it's got uh, a couple of practice tests in the back with an answer key, so you can check and see how you did. You can practice your fallacy detection skills uh, by reading that book. Very cool. Yeah, I've uh, friends, I've read that book as well and love it. That's why I wanted to ask Jason about it. Uh, another book that I have of yours, Jason, is The Ultimate Proof. Now, I have, or I'm sorry, The Ultimate Proof of Creation, Resolving the Origins Debate. I have not read that one yet. Tell me about that. Oh, I think, I think you're going to like it. That's my personal favorite book of all the ones that I've, I've written. That one, I just have a special love for that. What it does is it shows you that the Christian worldview and really only the Christian worldview, can make sense of anything, uh, from science to mathematics to logic to morality. Uh, you see, what, what, what happens is we, we tend to get caught up in these details of arguments, you know, the details of the science and star formation and things like that. That's fine. You know, there's a place for that. But uh, one of the things that I like to challenge my secular colleagues is how would science even be possible in a chance universe? You see, science presupposes that the universe is orderly and logical and that the human mind can understand the universe and that our senses are reliable and so on. But these are things that only make sense in the Christian worldview. 
huh. as a Christian, I have the right to assume that my senses are basically reliable because they've been designed by God. My mind can be rational because I'm made in God's image. The universe is logical and orderly because God upholds it in a consistent fashion and has promised to do so from his word. And people would say, boy, is it really that easy? And the answer is, yeah, it is. You see, the Bible tells us in Romans 1 that God has made himself known to everyone. And that's why everyone is able to do, to some extent, science. And they're able to reason to some extent. And, and they're able to breathe and get up in the morning and brush their teeth because they rely upon the, the continual upholding of, uh, that God does with, with his universe. And they, they believe that because in their heart of hearts, they really do know God. But the Bible says they suppress that truth and unrighteousness. And so unbelievers will take their knowledge of God and squish it down and pretend that they don't believe in God. But uh, what I do is I expose their suppressed belief in God by showing that what they believe in, science, rationality, and so on, really only makes sense if the biblical God is who he says he is, if the Bible really is true. It's a really powerful argument for biblical creation. I dare say an irrefutable one. I've never had anyone be able to come back from the argument. Huh. And that doesn't mean that people will necessarily cry uncle and say, well, you know, you got me there. But the way I like to put it is just because you don't cry uncle doesn't mean I don't have you in headlock, right? I mean, I've, I've got you. I've got, the, the argument is a killer. And whether or not people uh, will admit it, that's, well, that's, that's a pride issue. But the, in terms of rationality, only the Christian worldview can account for those things that um, are necessary for reasoning. It's, the book's got much more to it than that. Basic, but that's the basic premise of it. And uh, the person who was really good at using this type of argumentation is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In his earthly ministry, he was very good at pointing out that the, the argument of, the, of his opponents doesn't even make sense. He could take an argument and turn it on its head. And I've, I've heard a lot of people say, boy, I sure wish I knew how to do that. Well, that's kind of what this book is training you to do. It's training you to uh, see things biblically so that you can see that all truth is in Christ. And if anyone uh, dares to challenge God's word, they're in a position that they can't really know. Ultimately, they wouldn't be able to know anything apart from the truth of the Bible. Hmm. Wow. Cool. I, I'm I'm all over that. I'm going to be reading that pretty quick, and perhaps I might even try to con you to come back on the show and talk more about it. I'd be happy to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, Dr. Lyle, it has been an honor and a blessing to have you on the show. It really has. Well, thanks. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you very much. All right. Well, there you have it, guys. That's Dr. Jason Lyle, again, of the Institute of Creation Research. Guys, I really can't speak highly enough of Dr. Lyle. I really enjoy his books. Uh, you can find many of his talks on AnswersInGenesis.com. Uh, yeah, there's many of them in video form. Uh, you got to check them out. Uh, and, and yes, his books are fantastic. Changing subjects a little bit here. I wanted to make an announcement. Uh, there is a conference coming up on January 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. It is the uh, Student Worldview Weekend Contend 2015 Conference. Guys, uh, this is a an apologetics-slash-worldview conference that is put on uh, by Worldview Weekend. That's uh, Brandon House's uh, ministry. I cannot speak highly enough of his ministry. Uh, in fact, I get many ideas for various podcast topics from Brandon House and his ministry. Uh, he really does a fantastic job talking about worldviews uh, and apologetics. Uh, he gets into some more, uh, well, in his podcast, he gets into more uh, uh, 
current issues as well. But anyway, yeah, I'm not talking about his podcast, although if you want to check out his podcast, you really got to check it out, too. It's it's fantastic. But this Worldview Weekend uh, Student Contend 2015 conference, again, it's January 1st, 2nd, and 3rd of 2015. Uh, it is in Collierville, Collierville Tennessee. Uh, guys, it is free. Uh, it's got a great lineup of speakers, of course, as one might expect. There's going to be Brandon House there. Uh, there is Mike Riddle of Creation Training Initiative. Uh, guys, he's got a podcast, Creation Training Initiative. I, I think Mike Riddle used to be part of Answers in Genesis. He's been floating around doing various uh, creation, evolution, young earth creationism type uh, talks. In fact, I've had the opportunity to meet him in person when he came and spoke at our church uh, probably about five years ago. Probably does not remember me at all. That's fine. Uh, amazing guy. Great information. Uh, he's going to be speaking about creation and evolution, I'm sure. Uh, Jesse Johnson, Jason Pratt, uh, Jared Carlson. He's the son of, of Ron Carlson. Great apologetics. Uh, also, Mike Avendroth and Justin Peter, who I am going to have on a soon uh, future podcast talking about uh, the Word of Faith movement and some of the doctrines and some of the teachers that uh, uh, circulate in that movement. But anyway, this conference really, guys, it's free. It's free. It's a three-day conference. It's jam-packed. Uh, with great information, just, I mean, really a great opportunity if you've got uh, high school to college age, uh, you know, youth groups that you'd like to take up there. Guys, seriously, this is one of those that you cannot miss. Uh, if you go to contend2015.com, there's more information there. I just want to mention it. Uh, it's just a great opportunity. opportunity. And again, it's free. Uh, great conference. You guys really got to check it out. Uh, I wish I could make it. I really want to make it. I don't think it's going to happen, though. Uh, but, guys, I'm all the way in Colorado. Many of you are far closer to that. And so I, I'd say, hey, and, and even if you are farther than me, uh, this is a great conference to go to. Uh, they had one in 2014, and they packed the house. And I've I've heard nothing but good about it. So, uh, yeah, check that out. Again, uh, www.contend2015 or 2015.com. And so anyway, that's pretty much it for today, guys. I will uh, catch you again next week with another podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.